0: You can turn in your bulletin to page 10, or if you have your Bible with you, or a Bible app, you can feel free to turn to Psalm 73. This morning we will be looking at the whole psalm. We're continuing in our study of the psalms this summer, and then only for a couple more weeks, and then we, we change and we have, start our fall sermon series. So Psalm 73, if you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. Hear now the Word of God. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threat oppression. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourselves, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Before we get started talking about the text this morning, I wanted to remind you that Trinity is having a new members class next Sunday at 1 p.m. If you need childcare, it will be provided to you. If you're interested in becoming a member of Trinity or just really learning more, there's no obligation to this class if you come to it. It's not like you have to join. But if you would, RSVP so we can get an idea of how many people are coming, and we can get materials and things like that made. So thank you for that. Now, This is the first time for me to be preaching since I started at Trinity. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Scott Mitchell, and I'm the pastor for Community Formation. Pastor Blake is gone. He's in New Jersey right now after having been in California, and I think after that he's going to Bora Bora and then to South Africa, while his wife and children suffer in the Oklahoma heat. Uh, My wife and I have been, my wife Bonnie and I have been living in Pennsylvania for the last nine years, doing campus ministry with Reformed University Fellowship at Lehigh University. Both of our children were born there, even though Bonnie and I were both born and raised in Texas. So I encourage you to ask my children if they're Pennsylvanians, to which they will respond, "No." Ask them if they're Oklahomans, they will respond, no. Ask them if they're Texans, and they'll respond, yes. So it's good to have Texans and Oklahomans and all sorts of people here. We have been welcomed so kindly by so many of you, and it has made the transition really, really happy for our hearts. So as we look at Psalm 73, I think it's important for us to ask the question, why this psalm? I mean, there's 150 psalms. One of them is the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, so I wasn't going to choose that. So out of 149 choices, why this psalm today? Why this psalm today? And quite frankly, I chose it because... I need to hear it. We've just moved halfway across the country. Our house in Pennsylvania is not sold. We're still marginally living out of boxes. There's been a lot of ups and downs. And we've left behind really good friends to make new burgeoning friends. But sometimes life's just hard, even when it's happy. Some of you are in a spot like that right now. Maybe your health is failing. And that's not easy to know or to hear, whether you're 75 or 25. It's not fun to go through that. Some of you have had job struggles, either trying to find a job that you really love, or try to find a job that will pay the bills, or try to find a way out of a terrible job. Some of you come, I suspect, every Sunday morning, and you've got something that just weighs you down like a millstone hung around your neck. And you need your eyes to be lifted. That is why we're looking at this psalm this morning. Because this psalm addresses us where we are. It addresses us where we are. Now, as we were reading through it, I don't know if you noticed, but the crux of the psalm centers on verses 15 through 17. But before we get there, we need to take time to notice two very important things. And the first thing that we need to notice is this, that this Psalm engages our hearts. This Psalm engages our hearts. You know, I think back to the time, almost eight years ago, when I was not a father, but Bonnie was pregnant with Lucy, and apparently we were doing this thing called nesting You heard of this where you got to get things ready for the baby to come and we were picking out you know lacy frilly girl clothes looking at paints to paint a room and i think we ended up painting her room a color called orchid whisper not purple not violet it's orchid whisper now, how many of you are interested in Orchid Whisper? Yeah, exactly. Maybe three of you. I don't care. I don't, give a, I don't give a thought to Orchid Whisper in my day-to-day life. But we were doing that, and we were going to Babies R Us and looking at these cute little plastic things that I don't know what they do. Apparently, they held pacifiers in the dishwasher. Well, how come you can't just put it in the dishwasher? You can't do that. So, we were doing all these different things, and oh my goodness, by the grace of God, babies are us. You know, they have one of the greatest things in the world. You walk in, and there's an entire row of recliners. And you know what you find right there? Men sitting in the recliners, waiting for their wives to finish up. And I look back on that time and realize. A lot of it I was just kind of annoyed by and a lot of it I was just disengaged. Okay, I'm not into buying girly clothes. I'm not in to what paint colors are called and how they might look and how they might complement other things in the room. Whatever it was, sometimes I was just disengaged from what we as a couple were doing. And that's a lot of our experiences, right? how we can just so easily disengaged. You know, maybe you're not interested in your husband's hobbies. Maybe you're not interested in all the bargains your wife just got at the store. Young ones, maybe you're not interested in what I'm saying right now. Maybe it would be a lot more fun to open your phone we have the ability as a society to disengage almost immediately. But what all of this nurtures in us is this ongoing remarkable ability to disengage ourselves from what's actually happening around us. And if we take that attitude and that heart to this psalm, we're doing ourselves a great disservice. You know, in this psalm, what we have is a description of what Asaph, who wrote the psalm, what he sees and feels. This isn't the generations of Noah and someone begatting someone else. This is a window into the thoughts and passions of a man's heart. I mean, if you look at the psalm, just skim it with me. In verses 3 through 7, Asaph sees how these wicked people are prospering. In verse 8, he sees how they mock oppression. And even in verse 11, how they mock God Himself. But we see also how He feels. Look at verse 3. He's envious. In verse 16, he has trouble in his soul. In verse 21, he is bitter and he is pierced in his heart. Do you understand that these aren't words that you would write in a work email or memo? These are the type of words that you would write in a diary. And so when we read this psalm, We have to allow our hearts to be engaged with it. If we check out, in the way that we check out a lot of times, we won't get the first step in understanding this psalm. So the first thing that this psalm does is it engages our hearts. And the second thing that we notice, and really this is simply from a bird's eye point of view, is that this psalm engages our hearts toward God. You and I all know how things get us riled up, how things get us excited, what actually engages us. Maybe you have a TV show that you will not miss for anything. Maybe you have a podcast that you absolutely have to listen to. What engages me? I like to fish, and I love watching the Dallas Cowboys, and when I'm doing those things, bombs could be going off all around me and I wouldn't know. You have things like that and I have things like that. And you might think, okay, I'm an engaged type person. I'm always, I, I understand what it means. But here's a problem with that. A lot of times we can get riled up and excited and engaged and we're there and we're present and we turn off our phones. But just because we're engaged doesn't mean we have a heart captivated by God himself. When Asaph looks back on what he saw and how he felt toward all of these wicked people, how does he describe it? Look at verses 21 and 22. I'm going to read from the New American Standard translation. He says this. He says, When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was a beast before you. So when he looks back on himself and he considers how he felt toward the prosperity of all of these wicked people, he describes himself like an animal, senseless and ignorant. Okay, I want to give you an example. Uh, it's a bird called the kakapo. So there was going to be a picture up here and there's not. Imagine a really cute parrot that can get up to 10 pounds the largest parrot in the world. There's two things that make them unique. One, they are critically endangered. There's less than 200 kakapo in the entire world. Two, they can't fly. They're birds, but they can't fly. So they climb. They're expert climbers. They use their feet and their beak to climb up into trees. As I was reading about these kakapo, I found out how they they defend themselves from predators. And it actually might explain why there's only about 200 left in the wild. You know what happens when a -a kakapo gets scared? He does one of two things. If a predator comes at a -a kakapo, and they're very colorful, beautiful birds, they're not camouflaged, he either sits completely still, or, he climbs up the tree as quickly as he can, and they're pretty fast climbers, and then they jump off, but they can't fly, so they go, plop, back down on the ground. Now, I realize that God created the cockapoo, but for a defense mechanism, that's dumb, Right? Earthworms have a better defense mechanism. The poor kakapo. Animals can act senseless and ignorant. 90% of the animal videos on YouTube are animals acting senseless and ignorant. Now going back to the text, the question is this. Why? Why did Asaph consider himself to be like an animal? Why, when he looked back, did he say, I was no better than a -a cockapo? And the answer is this, that although his heart was engaged toward what he saw, he saw the wicked flourish, he saw their oppression, and it angered him and he was bitter. Although he was engaged He was not engaged with any reference to God whatsoever. Look at verses 2 through 14. In his reaction to the wicked, not once does Asaph consider God. His eyes are only and always on the wicked. The only time he considers God is to say, hey, they're mocking God. Hey, they're doing this evil thing. They're doing that. And he's riled up, and it pierces his heart, and he's bitter. And that brings us to his pivotal moment. We read in verses 15 through 17, If I had said, I will speak thus, Behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. So, the final thing that we notice about the psalm, and really this is the point, the entire point of this psalm, is that this psalm engages our hearts toward God's perspective. This psalm is written to allow us to begin to see life not through the horizontal, not the way that we see it, but the way that He sees it. Now I want to ask you, does perspective really make that big of a difference? Does it really make that big of a difference? I'd I'd submit to you this morning that the, the great power of perspective is not so much in what we see, but in how we see. You see, two people can look at exactly the same thing and see something very different. i share with you a couple of examples. The first from Jules Verne, the author of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. He wrote this, To the poet, a pearl is a tear of the sea. To the oriental, it is a drop of dew solidified. To the ladies, a pearl is a jewel which they wear on their finger, neck, or ear. To the chemist, it is a mixture of phosphate and carbonate of lime with a little gelatin. And for the naturalists, a pearl is simply a morbid secretion of the organ that among certain certain bivalves produces mother of pearl. How all of these different people see a pearl. And as another example, Robert Fulton, the inventor of the steamship, was a contemporary of Napoleon Bonaparte, the French general. And one time, Robert Fulton pitched the idea of a steamship to Napoleon, to which Napoleon responded, "'What, sir, would you make a ship sail against the wind and currents by lighting a bonfire under her decks? I pray you excuse me, I have no time to listen to such nonsense. Napoleon saw a giant burning wood heap. Fulton saw a steamship. The issue, friends, is not what we see, but how we see it. Are we looking through our very narrow very small lenses, or are we looking through God's lenses on how he sees life? When Asaph was looking through his lenses at the prosperity of the wicked, how did he respond? He was envious and troubled and pierced and bitter, but he doesn't stay like that. Do you see the grace of this psalm this morning? is that we're given an insight into how his perspective changes. How does that happen? Verse 17, he came into the sanctuary of God. In other words, in light of every evil thing that he's seen, for the first time, he begins to consider the God who is. Oh yeah, God is king. He's the one on the throne. And then when he looks at the same thing through these new God-shaped lenses, what does he see? In verses 18 to 20, he sees that the wicked will be judged. In verses 21 through 22, he sees that without having God's perspective on life, we're just sinfully ignorant and senseless. Verses 23 through 28, and for those who take refuge and the Lord God, to them, God is good. Sometimes we have trouble seeing through the right lenses. I mean, brother or sister, I want, I want you to hear this morning. God is not playing games with your life. He is the strength of your heart and your portion forever. So I'd encourage you to have the psalm engage your heart to see life from God's perspective. Now, the problem with preaching the Old Testament is the new. You know, when Jesus, after he was resurrected, he's walking on this road and (coughs) talking to these two fellows, and something happens where Jesus tells these guys, that all of the Scriptures point to Him. You know, people make a big deal about prophecies pointing to Jesus, and there's however many, 600 some odd prophecies that point to Jesus. You know what points to Jesus? Every single word in the Old Testament. I mean, Psalm 73 points us to Jesus. The question is, how? How does Psalm 73 point us to Jesus? Well, I can think it. I think it does in two different ways. The first is historically, and the second is experientially. So historically, what we've seen today in Psalm 73 is a drastic and dramatic change of perspective from seeing things our way to seeing things God's way. And in the course of history, I can't think of a bigger perspective changer than what happened on Holy Week, when Jesus was about 30 years old. He comes into Jerusalem and he's riding on on a colt to fulfill the prophecy and people throwing down palm branches saying, Hosanna, save us, we pray. Here comes the king. And he has a last supper on Thursday night with his disciples and he says, I'm going to die. They come to arrest him. Peter's not happy about that. Peter ends up denying him three different times. And this man who had never sinned, who was put on a cross, he was put on a cross for your sin and my sin. And could you imagine being one of the disciples? You have given up property and your life to follow this man who called himself God and he's nailed to a cross and put in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And he's dead. And you're weeping. And then Sunday morning, you hear the women running back, screaming out, he is risen. He is risen. Jesus is alive. The resurrection of Jesus from the grave changed the entire course of history. And then experientially, some of you have been a Christian for a long time, and that is wonderful. Wonderful. Some of you have been Christians, maybe for a couple weeks, and that's wonderful. And some of you are here, not really knowing where you're at, but you're just wanting to know more, and that's wonderful. And if you know Jesus, and you know what he's done, here's the change of perspective. You were in darkness, but now you were in light. You were condemned, but now you're forgiven. You were bound in sin, but now you are free because whom the Son sets free is free indeed. You were once a child of wrath, but now you are a child of the living God. You are free, unbound. Grace does change everything. And you have the mind of Christ. Christ. And you have the ability to see life from his perspective. But it doesn't come by coming to the sixth grade center. Did you notice that about Asaph? He's just simply said, Until I came into the sanctuary of God. Well, he, he had a sanctuary. We have a gym. It wouldn't have been so nice if he'd have said, Until I came into the gymnasium. How do you and I come to the sanctuary? The picture that changes our perspective is not a sanctuary that's made with human hands. It's not a church building. The temple and the sanctuary where the saints of old worshiped is no more. Our place of refuge, our place of worship has a name. And his name is Jesus. So do you want a new perspective? Do you want new lenses then come to jesus as savior and as king let's pray father we ask that you would do good things that no matter where we are no matter what we're going through you would give us the grace to see things from your perspective even if it's for moments, that that we can see that you're good. That you love us and you hold us and you care for us and you're always for us and you'll never leave us. Help us to see that. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the reasons that we at Trinity do communion every week is to give us a new perspective. To have us taste and see. You know, because you're sitting there, and for most of what's going on, you're just using a few senses, right? I mean, you're using, let me think of the five senses. You're using your sight, you're using your ears. Unless the person next to you can't sing that well, in which case you're kind of t- trying to tune them out. You know, sight, your ears, so you're not using your taste buds, not smelling anything, unless, again, this stuff is here to engage us fully. You know, when you, get, when you get the bread and the wine, I want you to look at it and f- feel the bread. I want you to smell the wine, to see that Jesus is present in all of it. He is calling you to see life from his perspective, which means he is dead, he is risen, he is coming again. So in this, this table that we're going to have is for people who trust Jesus. It is. Who know that they're broken and who know that they need a Savior and that Jesus is that only Savior. So if you're, you're a member in good standing of a church that preaches that gospel, this is for you. If you're not there, there are different prayers found on page 13 of your bulletin. I'd encourage you to just not take it this week and stay in your seat and pray through one of these prayers. So as we come to the table, we do it because we were instructed. In the night when the Lord Jesus was betrayed, He took bread and He broke it and said, this is my body given for you. In the same way, He also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood given for the remission of sins. All of you take of it. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. In just a moment, after I pray, we're going to come down the center aisle, and there'll be four stations, two at the front and two at the back. Um, The... On the stations, there's a gluten-free option. If you need it, just ask the elder who's there. And if you would prefer grape juice, it's the white. If you would prefer wine, it's the red. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us Jesus, whom we celebrate in this supper. That he indeed is alive. And through this, we were remembering his sacrifice until he comes again. And so, Jesus, we love you. Thank you for dying for us. And thank you that we get to celebrate your death. Not because we were happy that you died, but because of what you purchased in it. We bless you and pray these things in your name. Amen. So, when you are ready, please come forward.